0: General,
1: we are discovered Good I'm not built like other men Ridley Scott's new blockbuster Napoleon covers the French Emperor's battles, triumphs and enduring love for Josephine And according to Irish Times Chief Film Correspondent Donald Clark, it's a rollicking good night out at the cinema.
0: On the whole, I mean, it certainly has its flaws. Um, I thought it was cracking entertainment.
1: But many historians feel, and have been very vocal about it, that Napoleon, the great sprawling movie that it is, is lacking one key ingredient.
0: How much of the film is, um, in your terms, accurate? Of the two hours,
1: 38 minutes, I'd say 38 minutes. That was Andrew Roberts, highlighting a lack of historical accuracy in the film. But so what? Does a filmmaker have an obligation to portray history as it happened? Or is telling a good story and entertaining the audience much more important? Ridley Scott has had enough of historians carping from the sidelines.
0: So I don't think it's a history lesson, I think it's a character study. With violence, with action, with everything you've got.
1: This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, did Napoleon fire on the pyramids? It doesn't matter.
0: Donald, Napoleon
1: was released. Last week, and in your review, you gave it a pretty decent four stars out of five. actually, that's kind of more than decent really. Um, so you obviously enjoyed it. What makes it, though, for your average punter going to the pictures worth the two and a half hour runtime?
0: Funny, if you say a two and a half hour long time, like that's a bit of a trial. But in fact, given the amount <laughs> kind of stuff that he packs into it, it actually certainly wouldn't say it's slow. It rattles along at a great pace. In fact, and we know that um, uh, that there's a plan to produce a four hour version um, on Apple TV Plus at some point, which would actually makes would make perfect sense. So I that's mean, the
1: super director's
0: cut. Yeah, but I mean, it, I mean, it focuses largely on the start of his career and um, the um, demise in St. Helens. Throughout that, you get his early um, military adventures, um, you get his rise to power, um, you get his early successes, you get the failure in Russia, you get exile to Elba, you get the 100 days. So two and a half hours is not an enormous amount to fit. And a cast of thousands, presumably. And, a cast, cast thousands. and it, it's interesting, in that it is in that sense quite a traditional biopic. Um, we're quite used to the notion now that this convention has emerged whereby you tend to pick a certain moment in... In a character's life, let's say, for example, if you're talking about you know Churchill, you pick one particular moment in the war, as they did in *Darkest Hour*, and deal with that, rather than starting with you know his early journalistic career, taking you through the Battle of Amjumum or whatever it was, and up until the present day. This is old school stuff. In that it takes you through the whole career from you know first stirrings uh, to his death. In many ways, non-conventional film. Having said that, not least because they give us, I would say, a broadly comic version of Napoleon. And Joaquin is very funny in this film throughout. Um, he's this sort of rollicking, selfish, neurotic maniac who imposes his own neuroses as it happens in all of Western Europe throughout his career. Um, uh, uh, Spiteful of really kind of cheeky little lines. One point when he breaks down before the British ambassador and says, you think you're so great because you have boats, which I think goes very much to, to differences between the British and the French over the decades. That's, I think, one part and also the technical side of it as well which you expect from Ridley Scott, he's always been a great technical director, particularly large set pieces, so the battles are done extremely well, though I mean I would, offering some reservations say, you have the advantage and disadvantage that comes with computer computer graphics, with CGI that they're able to stage um, Waterloo most conspicuously on a grander scale than any film has done before because, well any, well, any film did 20, 30 years ago, I should say, um, because you now have the ability to do whatever you want. But At the same time, it, you get a kind of grey, that kind of greyed out, weightless look that you always get from CGI, and you kind of do long a little bit for um, the depth and the, and the colour and the reality that you got from, for example, the battle scenes in Stanley Kubrick's um, Barry Lyndon. Uh, and that's not coming your way. That, those days are over. No one can afford to do that anymore. With that proviso noted, those battle sequences are. Terrific! They're extremely violent, um, gnarly, uh, and also very, pretty well organized. So you have a fairly good notion of what's going on, which is always a difficult thing, even when you're reading a biography of Napoleon to figure out what flank is where and what flank matters to what other flank and so forth. But uh, no, on the whole, I mean, it has, certainly has its flaws. Um, I thought it was cracking entertainment. Those in power only see me as a brute, unfit for higher office, but I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great. And Caesar.
1: Well, now the reason why we're talking about it and on in the news, as you know, we don't we don't talk about film very often. We're talking about Napoleon because. Historians are very cross indeed with Ridley Scott because of what they say are inaccuracies in the film. That's especially around Napoleon's character. For for example, the trailer claims, and I'm going to quote it here without, maybe I'll put on the cinema voice, Napoleon came from nothing uh, when in fact his dad was an aristocrat what else are history buffs saying is just not true
0: well they're poking at all kinds of things big um, and small I mean the interesting, yeah, there's an interesting point about that though he was from a, a good family in the verticomas he did come from Corsica which is you know not even in France he came from, um he came from a you know a corner of the country that' was not regarded as remor- remotely fashionable and certainly not part of um the establishment despite his his uh, decent background well there is some difficulty with for example the fact that he fires on the pyramids during that campaign that was regarded as a bit cheap and obvious and I think appears in the trailer which is why it's one of those things um that was put front what's in, wrong with that front, well, he didn't do it I mean that uh, as, far, as far as we're aware <laughs> as far as we're aware um, he, didn't, he didn't do that anything else um there was also a lot of fustiness about the fact that um he has seen in fact the very first scene is um Marie Antoinette's execution and he's attends Marie Antoinette's execution and it apparently can be perused on the other side of the country altogether during that so that definitely didn't happen. And there's things like sequences you see him heading the cavalry charges as they run at the Prussians or the Russians or the British or whatever it is, which I say, in terms of the invented character within the film, even that felt a bit of a stretch to me. But what I would say is the main question you have to ask is are these things plausible for the quasi-fictional character that the filmmaker has created? Because Lawrence of Arabia, Peter O'Toole was not the real Lawrence of Arabia. This should be apparent to anybody who has two lobes in their brain uh, any more than Michael Phoenix is the real Napoleon here. But the question you have to ask, let's say, is... These films are derived from, but not enslaved to history, and they and these films create a quasi-fictional character which is fleshed out by extremely good actors. And I think the question, which is fair to ask, do these incidents that we're questioning in the film feel true to the character that they have created within the film? And I think for the most part, they do. That they have created a slightly kind of like off-reservation Napoleon, It probably would have a... have a crack at the pyramids if you happen to have the chance. I mean, the Marianne Antoinette thing, I think, is, honestly, who cares? What it's expressing is the fact that he was somehow connected with the revolution, that that um, affected his early life and that inspired his career, and that seems to be a reasonable thing to do. I I, I mean, there was one historian that even went so far and what is is really kind of a slightly jokey two-minute opening sequence to question the attitude of Marie Antoinette before she was beheaded, that she was too defiant, was the (laughs) suggestion, when in fact she was, um, understandably enough, um, somewhat unnerved by the experience. And,
1: of course, the question there is how did this historian know? Which gets to Ridley Scott's point, because he's been pretty robust, hasn't he, in in pushing back against people complaining about the historical... Well, uh, he has, yeah. I mean,
0: mean, as I say, I met Ridley a few weeks back and he is... Forthright, you'd have to say that. I mean, there is, you can take a man out of the uh, northeast of England, but you can't take the northeast of England out of, out of a man. He remains largely unreconstructed from the man that he was, you know, sort of 50 or 60 and years And we should ago. say
1: he's 86 nearly. 86, and the energy is incredible.
0: I mean, like, he is, I mean, to say that he's working as hard as a man half his age is really to understate the case. I can't think of another director in their 40s. Uh, who is working uh, as hard as he is, the work rate inc- only increased mm. over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, he struggled a little bit to get films made in the 80s and 90s, but not that much. He was still kind of making a film every two or three years, mm. which is not bad. What are his the big three? What, what's the big three in your mind? Well, it was the, the tricky thing for Ridley, Ridley Scott is he'll never really get away from the fact that 80% of people are going to say his two best films were were two of his first three. Um, which is to say Alien and Blade Runner. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. I would find it really hard to argue with that. Um, after that, it's kind of an erratic career. There are ups and downs. You know, there are great successes like Gladiator. There are the reverse of that, things like um, A Good Year and the Christopher Columbus film, uh, which was called <laughs> 1592 Conquest of Paradise. Do I have that right? With Gerard Depardieu as well. <laughs> Who knows? Got, five people um, saw it, I, think. But, 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 I mean, But, I mean, God bless him. In the last 20 years, he's had a pretty good run. I mean, like he hasn't perhaps made any masterpieces, but he's made... Successful oscar on him on films like The Martian. He's made a um, rollicking yeah, war film on Black Hawk Down. I mean, all of the 21st century ones, I would say the one I liked best was probably The Last Jewel. Which was shot here. That was the film which trapped Matt Damon in Dorky, you may remember. During lockdown it was a terrific film, the kind of Rashomon treatment of uh, a rape from three perspectives, which ends up uh, ends up being surprisingly for someone who's regards a macho film, quite a defiantly feminist film. When you get the woman's perspective right at the end, which is presented very firmly as the truth, a really cracking film. So I think, you know, the, the films are inconsistent, but I mean, he still is capable of producing a really good film. and Napoleon, for all its flaws, I think, uh, is up there.
1: Now, well, before we, we, we talk a bit more about specifically Napoleon, can we just do a slight detour to the crown? Hmm, sure. Now, um, I've watched the first four episodes. I don't know. Have you? Have you got a chance to see them?
0: I jumped ship, um, as yeah. it were, somewhere in the early 80s. OK. I was very on board with it when, you, when it was still intertwining itself with contemporaneous mm. British politics. Um, so I greatly enjoyed the stuff with Macmillan, played by Anton Lesser, if I remember correctly. I enjoyed the stuff when with the arrival of um, of Harold Wilson, and who was famously closer to the Queen than any other prime minister before or possibly since. All that stuff, when it was running a parallel storyline mm. with the soap opera aspect of the royal family and British post-war politics, which I'm a great interest. But then I thought it just collapsed into... Entirely into soap opera in the 80s. Well, when you got onto Princess Diana, yeah. now, you could tell me I'm wrong on it, it. Well, as it no, I mean, what, what's interesting is... <laughs> I just finish this point. The exact point I came up was when they were in Australia. Oh, yeah. And was that whole scene, when they, when they were kind of making up after falling out, I thought, oh, I've had enough of this.
1: Well, the thing about The Crown this time around is, of course, it's the sixth series, it's the final series, um, and it's largely dominated by the aftermath of princess diana's death in 1997 and of course the problem with that is is that a huge cohort of viewing public, will remember that time. We'll remember all the details. We'll remember what people looked like, what people sounded like, everything. Nobody's going to remember what Napoleon, you know, was like, do you know what, <laughs> what I mean? Like I said, he has got saved. He's no, saved right. there. Personal so <laughs> yeah, I agree. so there, is, there is an element of that. And, and it's come under a lot of, of criticism because people are saying, oh, that's not true. That didn't happen. Like, for example, in one of the episodes we see just before they head out in the car to that fateful journey towards the tunnel. Dodie is down on his knees he is proposing with a fabulous ring to Diana did that happen did, the two, did that happen in this hotel room in Paris who knows uh, we do know though, one thing that probably didn't happen Diana's ghost probably did not appear to the Queen and give her advice we finally succeeded in turning this house upside down It's nothing less than revolution that's never my intention uh, so, you know, there, so there is all that element, but still, it's getting a huge, huge backlash about saying, oh, that couldn't have happened, you know, that that's not great. And I suppose now what we want to talk about is, does it matter? Who cares? You know, so Ridley Scott, he changes history slightly, but that's for, for entertainment purposes, you know, like... If you look at, for example, th- that amazing portrait of Napoleon by Jean-Jacques David, Napoleon crossing the Alps, you know, and his big horse, yes. he looks extraordinary. Crossing the Alps, majestic uniform. But no by, one buys that as real. Cornel- well, yeah. apparently he crossed the Alps on a mule, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, wearing several overcoats. Sure. Like, so we immediately go to Jean-Jacques David and say, that's disgraceful. You're wrong. You're No, he's showing this representation of this great, great war hero. So does it matter?
0: Well, I think there's obviously a distinction between propaganda. Obviously, it's a very great painting as well, but it's a very great painting and also propaganda, um, as were all David's representations of um, Napoleon. Um, This is something different, and tone and purpose matters here as well. And I think there is fair distinction to make between those things that are made long after anybody um, who would have known the people involved um, is still living, and... Uh, series like The Crown, where a great number of people um, uh, are still living. I mean, it's here where you can understand those people who are directly involved balking at what they're seeing on screen. I can remember, for example, when The Damned United came out, um, a film about Brian Clough's um, time at Leeds United. Remember uh, Johnny Giles? John Giles on television being really furious about it. I can understand that. He's in the film. And you, Irishman, God gave you skill... Intelligence and the best passing ability in the game. What God did not give you was six studs to wrap around another player's knee. You know, you can argue, and it's a reasonable argument, that what you're producing, as I said earlier, is a semi-fictionalised version. That the novel that, that was based on David Peace's novel is a novel. That um, despite the fact that it is derived from the incidents that happened during Brian Clough's time at Leeds, it, is, it remains a novel. But I think that's a hard pill to swallow if you're watching yourself on the screen, represented, you know, in. Uh, broader terms than you remember it. So I think that distinction that is fair and I think it's perfectly reasonable um, for uh, Princess Diana's sons, who obviously are still with us, but I suspect they really aren't watching this, to be concerned and annoyed by how they are represented and how their mother is represented on screen, even if it's largely respectful, which I think it is.
1: Well, you could argue, I suppose, that nobody's going to a Netflix drama like The Crown, which is essentially, look, let's face it, a very, very posh soap opera. Sure. Nobody's going to it for... Their history lesson? Not really. But maybe, maybe they're going to Napoleon for a history lesson because it is called Napoleon and it costs $200 million. It's made by this extraordinary director. So maybe they're going to the nation to think, well, OK, anything that I see here on screen, it's going to be true.
0: What I would have a genuine issue is where a film makes an argument that is... Offensive with a degree of sincerity that, actually, that these things actually do set in. I the mean, example that, that I would think of is uh, Oliver Stone's JFK, which really has convinced you know, a large portion of the American and world public that you know, the New Orleans gay community killed John F. Kennedy, which just just didn't happen. I can remember. I remember seeing a long time ago, um, it shortly after the film came out, I think it must have been the 30th anniversary. Of uh, JFK's assassination. And they were interviewing people getting off a coach at um, Diddy Plaza and asking them on the BBC News, you know, what do you think happened? And this guy said, I think it was a coup d'etat. And I'm like, that's not what you think. That's what Oliver Stone thinks. That's actually lying from the film. The sixth and fatal shot, frame
1: 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. President going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository. Again. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. So that's kind of irresponsible.
0: I feel so, yes. Yeah, now, Sto- okay. I mean, Stone would make the case that he is putting forward an alternative myth. Well, I think in this circumstance people are... Going to look at that film and are going to. The way it's presented in a documentary fashion, I think that's. I would say that. Now, I would still repeat the notion like, it's still a bloody film, and if you are taking it seriously, there's more your problem than Oliver Stone's. Nonetheless, putting it out there in this sort of documentary fashion with these mixed media hurting backwards and forwards and black and white footage and colour footage gives the impression that you're watching something that is honing towards the truth. And I think that has been. That has had, had an unfortunate effect on. Attitudes towards the Kennedy assassination in the 30 years since.
1: The thing about Napoleon, I think, that makes him sort of an interesting subject... As much as anything else, is that he was mythologized from the very beginning. He was a self-mythologizer. I mean, yeah. he, he he sort of wrote home from battles, didn't he? Sort of making up things, things you know, things that had happened that maybe didn't, but that just well, show well, him a great life. Yeah.
0: Well, well, Ridley Scott was Ridley, as I call him. Ridley was, there, <laughs> Ridley was telling me that he was talking about this notion about the burning of, of Moscow um, when the French got to Moscow and and they arrived to find a deserted city which was on fire because the Russians being Extraordinarily uh, robust people when it comes to repelling invaders, as we've seen over and over again. Um, but basically, kind of gutted the city and um, and left. And by the time he was marching back, he was calling it a conquest. And decades later, he was claiming it was the French that had burnt Moscow to the ground. As Scott was saying to me, is it like is it a little bit of Donald Trump here, this notion of reinventing your defeats as victories. Um, And and in Napoleon's case, there wasn't really that much need to do that. He was pretty successful on the battlefield up until the very end.
1: And of course, you think when at the time, of course, this was the great cultural battle between France and England, and it was really the English caricaturist Galray, who invented Napoleon as we know him, because he said he was a small man. Napoleon apparently wasn't no, he No, was,
0: he, he wasn't tall, but apparently he was perfectly, he was perfectly ordinary height for, for a man in, in, in that era. Totally
1: normal. But, you know, because he had invented him as Petit Bonny. Uh, but it is
0: fascinating how, how um, people still argue to this day about whether or not he was a hero, or he was a tyrant, and well, which I think should suggest to any reasonable person there was clearly a bit of both. But I mean, I, I read Andrew Roberts's um, Napoleon the Great a few years back, which is interesting in that it's written largely a conservative right, and yet for him, Napoleon, who is, for many on the left, still a hero as well, was a genuine hero. And despite the fact that he spent his time beating up the British, that book still represented him as an extro- as a heroic figure in Verticum was Obviously, that book admits many, many flaws as well, but one can't doubt his energy. His energy was completely extraordinary. Of you know, things that are missing in the film, I think, I did feel some more reference should be made to his domestic um, reforms, because he basically invented the legal system that France still uses to this day, um, I think those sorts of things did require at least a mention. Obviously, not as much fun as watching him, you know, get beaten with the British at Waterloo or firing on the pyramids. But um, yeah, I thought maybe that could have got some some mention in there. He wrote novels that planned cities. I mean, an extraordinary degree of energy, which um, you just don't find in many sane human beings. Well,
1: now, there's an, an aspect of his domestic life, if you want to call it that, that it seems to, well, does it dominate the film? Probably not with so many massive battle scenes. But his relationship with Josephine,
0: And I'm not subject to petty insecurity. You're a beast. I feel sorry for you.
1: You want to be great. You are nothing without me.
0: It's fun, but also a bit sketchy. Vanessa Kirby is very good. Uh, who we were talking about? The Crown. You could watch was Princess Margaret um, uh, in the Crown, and it's now moved on to Josephine, moving through famous famous <laughs> woman in history at a great at a great pace. Um, oh, Vanessa, she's very good. Though again, if we're going to get back into historical accuracy, Josephine was 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 a few years older than Napoleon, and Gosh, and Vince must be at least fifteen years older than, than Vanessa Kirby. Certainly ten. Previous versions of the romance have. Played very much on the Maurice Chevalier model of um, French and love making, whereas this, he kind of, as a rollicking, drunken rugby player, basically, when it comes to the bedroom, I shan't go into too many of the details. But I mean, essentially, we are dealing with kind of, you know, with romping of the most unromantic and vigorous sort.
1: In the same way as historians are saying he never shot cannon at the pyramids, that's an absolute disgrace, that's historic. And of course, military historians, boy, they are. Oh, actually, yeah. They're probably the most detail oriented. Is that the kindest way to put it? Yeah. But we don't know what happened in the bedroom with with Josephine and Napoleon. Of course we don't. How would we?
0: Well, I think we do. Well, one thing we do have some grasp of, because it's in the letters, is that they were quite um, explicit in their expressions of affection to one another. Um, and we often kind of get quite kind of unrealistic about um, how people spoke about sex and so forth in decades and centuries past. And often they were quite as explicit and profane as we are now. Often more so, if you look at um, um, the poetry of Rochester or whoever in centuries past. But um, yeah, so I think it does go sort of somewhat to that. There are a few explicit scenes that um, have them expressing their affection for one another in terms that would not be um, proper in polite dining rooms. Um, So that's in there. And we do have some notion that that does reflect the kind of language they would have used from letters.
1: So look, is this just a case of this is a massive, massive blockbuster historical drama on the screen? Obviously, historians are going to have views on it. When Ferrari comes out, on December 26th. Presumably people in the motor racing industry are going to have views.
0: I've seen Ferrari, which I I really liked. Um, I wonder about that. On the other hand, Michael Mann, who made Ferrari, is a real motor racing um, fanatic. So I'm not but um, I'm willing to bet he's worked really hard on making sure it's the right cars and the right tyres and the right steering wheels but certainly you're but right. Still, but still, still they'll I, find something.
1: For sure. So, you know, is that, go- is that always the lot of any director? Who yes. Tack- yeah,
0: okay. And particularly at this time of year. I mean, this is, we, when it comes around to Oscar season, I don't think Napoleon is going to get many Oscar nominations, I should say. Um, but um, nonetheless, it's part of the conversation we're getting around to award season. This, certainly that's what happens every year. Now, this 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 year, actually, looking at the potential um, Best Picture nominees, there aren't actually that many contenders uh, to be beaten up uh, left, right and centre by people who are pernickety about history. I mean, the only one that's... Jumpside has been a really historical film that looks likely to get a Best Picture nomination is Oppenheimer. And that's been largely quite well received by op-buffs.
1: I can't believe it. here we are.
0: It's an atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but what were you guys doing in Los Alamos? So I think he will probably get away with that, I suspect. Um, but yes, these things always come up. In, I mean, for example, example, Christopher Nolan, director of Oppenheimer, has got a few kind of people getting at the film because it didn't represent the Japanese experience. But somehow that's not part of the conversation, the effects of the bomb. Um, just as people are knocking backwards and forwards, how um, uh, Martin Scorsese represented the um, the Native American population in Killers of the Flower Moon. Initially, all the publicity was positive. All, the members of that community, the Osage community, had been consulted and they were... Very fond of the film. Then others came and said, "Well, hang on, this still centres the white experience. It still comes from the Leonardo DiCaprio. He is the, he is the centre of the film. We see the we see the story unfolding through his eyes to his death. So these things always kick up at this time of year. Um, and talking again about how you know recent history being the most painful. Um, for example, one members Green Book." Um, from four or five years ago, um, the story of Don Shirley and the pianist who, uh, who, and being driven around the uh, south at the time, time of um, segregation. Don Shirley's family up um, a great deal of fuss about how close the Viggo Mortensen character seemed to um, Shirley in this film when they didn't buy it for an instant, but that didn't as it happened, harm its chances at all. It came from behind to win Best Picture anyway. How is that? Salty. Have you ever considered becoming a food critic? One of the other messages of this conversation is we love getting annoyed at stuff. And we love yelling at it on social media. And, you know, we love yelling at it to our friends in the pub. And that's a perfectly reasonable way of behaving. I have no objections to that whatsoever. But after you've done that, sit back and think do I really believe that? Or am I just enjoying being upset by this?
1: So your message would be, Napoleon, go see it. And my message for the crown is, look, watch it over Christmas for the laugh with the glass of Baileys in hand. It's not serious. A lot of the stuff didn't happen. And so what? Thanks, Donald.